Well, the week has come, the week that GM said to its 5,000 employees who work at the Renson here in downtown Detroit, it's time to put some pants on, it's time to comb your hair, and it's time to get your ass back to the office. Where's all the people? The Detroit News wrote just last week that this week, quote, Thousands of employees will descend, 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 descend again on the Renaissance Center. So I ask you, where's all the people? Today was the day that all the employees should come back to the Renaissance Center. I'm a new employee. Where's all the people? People, I don't know where they are, but hopefully they will come back soon. Hope is not a business model. <laughs> yeah, you are right. Doesn't look like they planned for the dissension of thousands of people. The windows are filthy, the Christmas decorations are still up, and the food court is empty. Here's a guy named Lawrence. He works for an insurance company. He thinks we're in big trouble. I don't know where they are. Um, like I said, I heard earlier this week that they were to come back next Monday. So most people that work here don't want to come back here? It doesn't look like it. Where do you think they all are? Uh, still at home. People doing better work in their PJs? Probably so. Dodging income tax? Yeah. Aren't people afraid if they don't come to work they'll be replaced by robots? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, there's a human aspect to any you know, work that has to be done. But uh, it doesn't seem like uh, a lot of the companies really care because they're still getting the same amount of work done, if not more, with people being at home because they tend to work on it. Thousands of people to descend on the Renaissance Center. I don't see them, and they don't want you to see that. Uh, I hear that they have a lot of... I'm just sitting here. I'm just sitting here talking to you guys. I can So we're here with small businesswoman Grace Carros of the famous American Coney Island. So what'd you find over there? Dead, empty, nobody. No, no one's coming back to work. They're full of shit. So what's that mean? We're all fucked. That's what that means. We're all fucked. That's what that means. Reporting from downtown Detroit, Charlie LaDuff, no bullshit news. Yeah, well, Hippie, have we cleared the YouTube, you can't smoke for the first minute or whatever the fuck? 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah all right. I needed that because that was the biggest story going on in the life of Detroit in the long term this week. Was it not, Mark? It was. Yeah, everybody was pumped up for it. I mean, they were promising everyone's going to come back. Karen, how important is a full Renaissance Center to the city of Detroit in terms of restaurants, tax base, vibrancy? 
all of that, Charlie. But, you know, I mean, as the gentleman you spoke to, he said, you know, people are being just as productive or they've moved on to other things. Um, you know, our business model, the way we knew it from three years ago, doesn't exist anymore. And which is why it doesn't make sense for us to keep opening up or projecting new office space in downtown Detroit. That's true. I mean, just giving away millions of like <laughs> money that should go to the impoverished. This is just horseshit, it's thievery, it's it's legalized thievery. And we're all mad at it. But I disagree. I don't think people are more productive at home. They might new, they might be logged in longer, but they're not doing shit. Well, but Charlie, if people hold, they need to hold people accountable. And that's the thing. Accountability is always missing. People get caught up in thinking you got to be in the office from nine to five and people don't do anything for those eight hours. They don't if do anything fact, for 16 hours at home either. Well, I understand. But I'm saying if there's an accountability factor, then you will be able to see if, in fact, that person is being productive. So if you're not holding them accountable in the office, you're not holding them accountable at home either. Whose well, fault is that? It's easy to hold them accountable in the office where I can see your ass doing nothing. No, get, not, get, get, get no. Coffee pot. The <laughs> fuck over your true, desk Charlie. and type. Get over here and type. That's not true. Type, type, that's type. not true. I think that's true. I don't think you can just say it's not okay, true. Well, I, mean, I disagree. I mean, I get more done here than I do at home for the show. Just saying. That's you, you I think do, today was you? Exhibit A, wasn't it? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, there you have it. So you know, it comes to light. We're giving GM three billion dollars in cash, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever they ask for it over the next ten years, part of the covenant. Signed under Granholm was, you're going to be in the Renaissance Center, right? Well, during COVID, they quietly removed that clause, and there's no requirement for GM to be in the Renaissance Center. So, I'm watching. I'm watching. Because this means everything to us in Michigan. Everything. That's what put muscle on our bones. Huh? Yes. All right. Now, listen. Should I do a word from our sponsors, or should I get into the meat of this matter? Uh, word from our sponsors. Okay. He's right over there. That's Bernie from XG Service Group. Hey, Bernie, what is VoIP? Voice over IP. Voice over IP. What is that and why are you selling it? Why do I need that, Bernie? Pops lines are gone. The old fashioned phone lines are gone. Phones are gone. Phones over the internet. Phones over the internet. All right. So, like, nobody, nobody got plug in telephone anymore. So, you want, bait? you're doing Google phone? Well, it's sort of the same. Yeah, okay. Just better. Just better. That's right. You know, what else do you do, Bernie? Uh, Drive-throughs, uh, drive-through systems, headsets, uh, security cameras, uh, you name it. We do it low voltage. We do it Wi-Fi. We do Wi-Fi design for high-rises, hotels. You know, when I'm living in the sticks or like, you know, Shelby or like Livonia yeah. and I'm driving and they still don't have the railroad tracks. We do those. You do that? Yeah, we do. So you put in cameras at the railroad track, so yeah. there's an app like, yo, take yeah. take the detour. That's correct. I mean, you do everything. Yes. Milan Raceway? Yes, done. What, what do they do? Why do they need internet at the race course? For the drivers to tune their cars. Oh. For the fans to videotape and stream it. Oh, right. He does all that. He did us. He did everything. Uh, he wants you to call his son, Matt. Matt Yaskovitz at 734-245-4100. Just do it. Just everybody, ready? 734-245-4100. Because if you don't support the sponsors, you don't support us, and then we can't keep doing this. By the way, Mark. Yes. With the data shell. 
uh, that we're doing better. It's going up, up, up. January is good. Yeah. It's good month. Real thank good. you, everybody. We're over 100,000 people a show, and we want to thank you. And it's only an hour, and it's not bullshit. And most of it's done grassroots, right? Very limited uh, marketing. <laughs> Look show, at you so. down with the cause, all grassroots and well, shit. Well, it's true, though. I mean, word of mouth is the best thing, right? <laughs> uh, ADR. Been telling about them for years. Experienced. Overseeing millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions in private and public construction projects since 2001. They're smart. They're competent. They know how to work the red tape to get done what needs to be done. Call Barry Ellen Tuck, Honest Ethical Smart, 248-318-9424. And thank you for your support of the American Coney Island Coney Kit. Uh, Unbelievable. Is it, are we so busy down there on the Mondays packing that up? It's crazy. Yep, you all know how to do Super Bowl. Mm. You get a little bit of Detroit right to your door. Dozen dogs, steamer buns, Vidalia onions, proprietary chili, 105 years old, only made for this place, and a nice hat for the kid. Mm-hmm. Play the tape. Two with everything. Decided Chiefs tries to go. Ready, set, go, Red, go. Detroit might not make it to the championship, but you can have a little bit of Detroit at your next championship party. American Coney Island, 12 dogs with all the fixing. Air mail special, right to your door. That includes Alaska and Hawaii. AmericanConeyIsland.com. The first, the best, and better than all the rest. And they can't fly either! Yeah, baby, I'm going to Vegas! They got a Coney store there, too, yeah! We got Steve Freeze in the house. He's writing uh, for our magazine. He, welcome aboard. Now, Steve, you might not know this, but we couldn't say Super Bowl. I mean, S-Bowl. Bowl, because the NFL is a bunch of douchebags. The big game, right? The big game, the championship game. That's how fucking corporate everything's gotten. Yeah, especially the NFL. Yeah. All right. Let's 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 get to let's get to the program, the meat of the matter. What we're here for. Let me start out by telling you, nothing burned in America this time around. Thankfully, maybe Memphis stayed peaceful because authorities there took swift action against the sinister gang of cops who apparently beat a handcuffed man to death simply because they were upset. City leaders there, to their credit, did not hide behind legally gobbledygook and torture contractual considerations. It doesn't matter that Tyree Nichols did or did not do. It doesn't matter what he did or did not do. Nobody taken into police custody is supposed to end up dead. That's just a basic rule. The video, which disgustingly, the re- release of which was promoted like a movie premiere, never seen such a thing. It shows it all. Cops bragging that Nichols got what he deserved. That's not policing. That's thuggery. And maybe the lack of civil unrest has something to do with the fact that it was five black cops who pummeled Nichols, also a black man. Absent this racial algebra, Nichols' story has already slipped to the back pages. Not here. Because it's a shame, not only because a man was murdered, but because here lies an opportunity to discuss how things really work 
and how to fix the problems, how difficult it is to get rid of bad police, no matter their color or that of the citizen. And dig it, it all has its roots in Detroit. I'll explain. In the wake of the 67 riots or uprising, the newly formed Detroit Police Officers Association negotiated the country's first comprehensive police contract. That's right. They achieved a generous pay raise and new disciplinary rules. Those rules, known as the Officer's Bill of Rights, became the template for police contracts across the country. Among those rules, discipline meted out to officers is expunged, expunged after two years and does not follow an officer in his career. An officer is also afforded 48 hours after an incident to provide a statement to investigators. Critics say this allows officers to collaborate and get their stories straight. Discipline, in the end, is determined not by the chief, not by the police commission, by an independent arbitrator. The chief of police may lessen the punishment handed down by the arbitrator, who doesn't see the work record from the last 3, 4, 5, 10, 15 years. He doesn't see that. But the chief may not increase the punishment. That remains the basic blueprint in America today. The Detroit police were awarded a new contract late last year. None of the disciplinary rules have changed, and the Detroit police contract supersedes the Detroit city charter. The work contract supersedes the rules of the city's constitution. Chew on that a minute. Now, usually it's the media who exposes a problem officer. Though trials by media are a problem in themselves, and the fact that abusive police officers are in the vast minority, there are still too many. Take the case of Sergeant Stephen Q, just one notorious example. In 12 years of service with the Detroit Police Department, Q racked up a whopping 85 civilian abuse complaints. That's about 10 times more than the average cop. Q had been accused of threatening citizens and using racist epithets, threatening lives, among many things. His escapades cost the city more than $800,000 in settlements, settlements that you paid. Nevertheless, Q was allowed to remain on the streets until 2021 when he was exposed by WXYZ TV, Ross Jones over there, Cracker Jack reporter. Now, more galling. Q had been red flagged as a potential problem and was assigned a supervisor to monitor him. That supervisor, Sergeant Willie Duncan, was accused in the same citizen complaint that triggered the review of Q. Why Duncan was made the monitor of Q at all is anybody's guess. According to his personnel file that I got my hands on, Duncan himself had accrued 81 abuse complaints. He also discharged his service weapon an astounding four different times. So where's Duncan now? He's awaiting trial charged with the rape of a female officer. True story. In the wake of Q and Duncan scandals and a slew of appalling news reports, the Detroit Police Department last year conducted an internal review which identified 128 high-risk officers. They're undergoing retraining. And that's one step forward. On the other hand, the city has now decided to redact officers' discipline records going back years that were once available 
under the Freedom of Information Act. And that's one giant step backward. And I'll say this, and you know me. There are a few jobs more difficult in America today than policing in a big city, and you have my respect. But hiding bad cops among the good and waiting till the flames reach the rooftops is no solution at all. Now, at this moment, I would like to welcome in Ralph Godby, the former chief of the Detroit Police Department. Can you hear me, Ralph? Charlie, I'm doing well. I'm pretty good. I'm doing well. Certainly. Now, anything I said there, was that incorrect or did it need to be clarified? Well, let me be real clear. I've been away from DPD for 10 years, so there may be some nuance to some of the things you said, but ostensibly, you nailed So, you have something like Nichols. We can go on and on and on. The reason we're talking about this is it's like school shootings, right? We wring our hands. We have problem we all acknowledge nothing gets done and then we wait for the next one right so uh, what we're trying to do here and by the way look i'm talking to a cop the top cop guy spent his life serving you you know what i mean i love good police but isn't one place to start ralph with this antiquated first of yes let me start with that this antiquated bill of rights where the very troubled officers um basically gets to go on and on and on. You know, Charlie, good cops, they detest bad cops. And the culture is so corrupt that it's it's disincentivized for the good cops to speak up. So uh, when you look at what's going on in Memphis, uh, uh, I think the biggest travesty, and, and you know, you applaud the chief on one hand for her transparency, for how quickly she addressed things. And, And that's laudable, but you got to be careful how much you pat the fireman on the back that started the fire. And the next part that has to be answered is how was this Scorpion unit constructed? How were these officers chosen? And then last but not least, why were there no supervisors either embedded in this group or responded to the scene? And until we can answer those questions, I'm very hesitant to break my arm patting Memphis on the back because it's so much more nuanced than just how you respond. Because at some point, we've got to get to a point of, of lifting those departments that honor their citizens in the first place, that don't beat their citizens to death, that don't have pretextual stops, that don't have two different ways of policing, the way you police in affluent communities and the way you police in perceived poor communities and, uh, and how you police black and brown people. And it doesn't matter the race of the officers. The system is so jacked up that systemically you can change the, 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 the color of the officer, but you're not going to change the results because at the end of the day, uh, at the end of these encounters, they're dead black men and women uh, that continue to happen that when arguably more um, violent people that are, are white, they get taken into custody with no issue. So those are the questions that we have to address and with 18,000 police departments in the United States, um, I don't want to hear this, you know, we need uh, cultural sensitivity training. Uh, you can't train your way out of a corrupt culture. You got to hold people damn accountable and they got to know what, what are the rules. And if you step across the line on those rules, you're going to lose your pension, you're going to get fired, and 
ultimately going to go to jail if you do it from a criminal standpoint. Well, damn, uh, my friend, you were the chief of police for three, four, five years. Where were you? Why didn't anything get changed? Well, you you talked about a lot of the things that uh, inhibit uh, chiefs from doing that. And arbitration in the city of Detroit, uh, particularly, uh, it hamstrung a lot of issues. For instance, uh, one of the most notorious shooters uh, in my history with Detroit Police Department was Eugene Brown. Um, there is no plausible way this man was involved in as many shootings as he was involved in nine without some corrective action being taken and you know what i don't know who was the chief then but he was supposed to be off the street and again the media saw like look look we're a community you gotta know i gotta tell the truth as i say i heard that brown was on desk duty with a service weapon and he was and i don't know if you were the chief or you were the assistant chief but it was found out then he was removed well, he was, uh, I, I know exactly why he was removed. We fired him because he was fudging his numbers on overtime. So that's what we ultimately fired him for. And wow. that, that termination was upheld. Wait I was a minute. Wow. Wait, wait. So, you know, and these, some of these were bad shoots. They were adjudicated as such. Oh, yeah. And the way you get rid of him is like paperwork. faking overtime. Yeah, paperwork. That's, that's what eventually led to him being fired and it, and it, and it being sustained by an arbitrator. And the thing is, arbitrators try to make both sides happy because they don't want to get fired. That, you know, so they, they got to give the union a little bit. They got to give the agency a little bit. And the citizens are the ones that lose in the long run. So, you know, the, the ability to get rid of bad officers early uh, is difficult. And, you know, so you, so as you but let me say this, Charlie, and, and this is an important point. Because we, we want to say that race is not an issue in Memphis, but it really is. Uh, Freddie Gray, when he was killed in Baltimore, the majority of the officers that were indicted were black. And this is why I'm a little bit hesitant to start, you know, waving the pom-poms now and say we've overcome because those officers were charged. They were removed from duty early and they ultimately were acquitted because the prosecutor basically moved too fast and overcharged. And the system is so rigged in favor of giving the officers the benefit of the doubt. Until these officers in Memphis are convicted and, and we see them do time, uh, I am not going to, you know, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. Should that be the response of every police agency when you have rogue behavior? It damn sure should. But also we've got to assess the culture of what makes officers feel comfortable enough Charlie, let me do this. Let me let me do this. Let me ask Mm -hmm. you this. Good cops, and you know they're the vast majority, bro. Good cops don't want to let these rules go either. And why and why is that? And be 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 frank and honest and dig deep. Good cops know the shit cops. They know it like nobody else. So why are they willing? Why do they support these rules? And and don't criticize them. Give me their no, mindset. Not, give me not, their mindset. Uh, no, I just want to give the mindset. It's Thank not a, you. It's not a critique. Right. But the reality is every police officer that straps up every day is one bad decision away of going from being the police to being a convicted felon. And I think to a person, every officer wants those protections in case it's them. 
in case there's a community outcry, in case the uh, political will to fire them goes against everything they were taught and trained to do. They don't trust leadership. They don't trust the politicians. So the only protection they feel they have, the good officers, is to have the same protection as the bad officers. And when you have that mentality, unfortunately, it insulates uh, some very bad actors. You know, it's not like, uh, um, you, you know, you work at DMC Hospital and you have, you know, tremendous surgeons and internists and specialists. You don't have the whole physicians group lumped in the same category because you have bad conduct from one doctor. They got malpractice insurance and then they operate at their own risk of how far they go to create risk and to live by the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. Police officers don't have that in a collective bargaining um, situation. And everything becomes so polarized as just a black and white issue, as opposed to what is what, what are the systemic issues that cause, at the end of the day, a disparate treatment of black and brown people than of white people. And whether the officer is racist or not becomes um, irrelevant to a point because if you got bad policy, you got bad law, you've got um, bad contracts from a citizen standpoint, uh, even though they inure to the benefit of the officer, the system is set up to where you're not going to see any substantive relief in the conditions on the ground. Let me, this, let me do this. Let me do that. Karen, Karen and Ralph. The way the contract is, I'll put it, let me, let me back up here. I talked to the police commission, a couple of police commissioners, charge of uh, public policy subcommittee. They don't have a fucking copy of this latest contract. I can't mm -hmm. find a copy of the latest contract. I asked city council for a copy of the latest contract. Karen asked city council. We don't even know what's in the contract, but we know from prior contracts that the rules of the contract supersede the law of the city. Meaning, there's a is this correct? I don't know if you know Karen or you know Ralph, but the new charter says that ultimately the ultimate authority about discipline is the police commission, the citizens elected police commission. Is this correct? That my that's understanding that with is. The, uh, previous charter as well, Charlie. So and yet an arbitrator is the one that's going to make the decision. That means that the, it ain't shit. City, the, 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 Karen, the Constitution doesn't mean shit when we're talking about this. Pretty, pretty much, Charlie. I mean, and as Ralph outlined, I mean, the officers have such a protection um, through an arbitrator and through this officer's Bill of Rights that you know it kind of, it gives them a leeway to, to to be able to do these kinds of things, and and there's no repercussion for it at the end of the day. Absolutely none. Mm. Now, uh, in in a, in a minute. We're going to bring in Ira Todd, you know, the former senior investigator for the Detroit Police Department, the, the most renowned homicide interrogator in, in the history of the country. We're going to bring him in in a minute. But before it slips away, th this is something important. We all come from a place, right? And this program's about we all belong writ large to a place together. Ralph, when you're talking about different treatment between black and white and brown, just some statistics. You can only take 2020. 
Don't believe any crime statistics after 2020 because over 40% of the police jurisdictions in America are no longer supplying their crime data to the FBI. Correct, sir? That's correct. So 2020 is our baseline. In 2020, there were 1,020 deaths by police shooting. Okay? Yes. Of those 1,000, let's just call it 1,000. It's 1,020. So 1,000. Of the aggregate, 459 were white people. 46% of all deaths by cop, by gun, were white people. They're 57% of the population. Not a one-to-one -one ratio, but by far and away, the lump share of this. Second, black Americans, 243, one quarter, 25% of all shooting deaths by cop are of black people. Black people make up 12.5% of the population. So that's twice as likely for percentage of their population. Latinos, Hispanic, 170 were killed by police with a gun in 2020. That's 16%. And they make up 20% of the population. So... Yes. It's not the same for brown and black. I think that's a convenient political grouping. It There's is. also what I see here. And again, acknowledge, I understand what this country's about. I understand right. how it was founded. I understand the racial issues. You know, I understand the boot on the neck. I understand mm. all of that. But when I see nearly 50% are white, I wonder to myself, what's the class of these people? That's the question, Charlie. That's the question. And when we when we start asking that question, we start to look at the socioeconomic status. If you start looking at the zip code of where these things are happening at, if you start looking at the mental health outcomes of the communities where this happens at, that's where you're going to see a commonality. And when we have that conversation, white America will realize that we have a problem with policing in this country. For black and brown people, and for those that are disenfranchised, at least you could say white people. Problem. You could say white people. Yeah, it ain't rich black people getting dropped. It's not rich no. Latino people getting dropped. Exactly, and it's not rich white people getting dropped. And like a lot of these are appropriate shootings. Let's yes. let's just get all the truth out there. But Karen, it's important to you because you and i we, i don't want to say bickered but we get heated about it and you're like do not diminish the racial quotient here right and charlie i understand the statistics i understand the data and and i appreciate you bringing that forward but i did not want our listeners or viewers to think that there was an attempt to pardon the pun whitewash the issue and the impact that it has in the black community. And that was it. I didn't want people to say, oh, you know, well, they're just trying to make it look like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, nothing, you know, the data is undeniable, but I want it to be understood um, that it was not an attempt to whitewash the data. It was an attempt to, de to deter away from the impact that it does have in the black community. And you, you've been wheeling around looking looking how people are taking this because this is a question going on in society and i feel funny about it now mark i'm gonna say no okay people are like well show, show me videotape oh we compiled a bunch of it 
you know, homeless white guy in Albuquerque. Just they yeah. dropped him. the The guy that got George Floyded in, in Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. I mean the the guy the cop thinks the guy's drunk driving Tennessee jumps in the back of his truck and shoots him through the window. We could do this yeah. ad nauseum. This isn't everyday policing. These are the outliers. But again, Ralph, that's right. I mean, you're right. I think we got to look at it holistically. And then this way we can get somewhere, you know, approaching the contractual situation. Uh, Here's a potential, Karen. I mean, where, okay, who cries the most? Who cries the most in terms of percentage is black women. This is a, a, a huge issue in America where black women can lead and so many of us can follow because... We all feel it. But you know, Charlie, it's also about a a continuation and a sustainability of black trauma. You know, I mean, the pushing out of the video and a reminder that, you know, black people shouldn't feel safe when they're in urban areas or around police officers. So it's a constant pushing of that narrative as well. Um, But, you know, motherhood and being a woman, period. I mean, when you see a child that has been killed or hurt, that hurt, that resonates with anybody who has any type of maternal instinct. So, you know, perhaps you're right, but you, you know, we can have a whole nother conversation about the dismissal of pain of black women. That's a whole nother conversation. It's deep too. If I, if I could digress Ralph for a second. Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, get in there. I just try to keep the show going. I, I don't think it should be lost on any of us that Dr. Martin Luther King, as we, you know, start um, the celebration of black history month, and we're on the heels of his birthday and we approach the anniversary of his death. He became a real threat to the status quo when he started to look at issues from a a, a, a social standpoint, economic standpoint. The poor people's and campaign. coalescing around the fact that the commonality between poor whites and poor blacks was much more in line with each other than simply mm-hmm. being a black and white issue. Because like you said, affluence does not know a race. There's some very affluent black people that don't go through what happens on Mac and Beaverick, on Philadelphia and Linwood. Um, is, it, is, it, is it a proclivity towards uh, and an implicit bias towards black men? Absolutely. Towards black women? Absolutely. But you cannot take class and socioeconomic status out of the equation. You can't take because 500 people out of 1,000 and pretend that didn't happen. Yes. Like, there's the, again, a solution-oriented program. Let's talk about, like, you go on MSNBC, man. You look good on there, by the way. Thank you, sir. And your connection's always better. I don't know why. <laughs> they send a van. <laughs> right? I, I'll tell you all. I'll tell you all why. <laughs> <laughs> they come over, don't they? Yeah. Oh, they come <laughs> over. You got a contract with them now? No, how do you not have uh, a contract perfect. with him? All these jerk-off reporters, right? All these has-beens. Mm-hmm. I'm also a CNBC contributor. That means they get, like, money, bro. Hey, we're working And on. you're busy you preaching in the pulpit on Sunday asking for tithings. <laughs> Come on. I'm doing the Lord's work. <laughs> yeah, you are. You are. Now, if I might, I want to bring in Ira Todd, another man. I don't know anybody that doesn't respect this man. Are you there with me, Ira? Yes, sir. Yes, How many sir. years you doing the DPD, brother? 35. 35. What did you do with the DPD? Well, I came from the state police first. 
And so when I got to DPD, it was a, it was kind of like a rude awakening because it was different. It was um, kind of a street cop. So I started off at the 14th Precinct, which was patrol. And from there, within about a year, I went to Gang Squad. And Gang Squad was a rude awakening. Coming from the state police and coming from patrol with DPD, Gang Squad puts you into an environment where it was totally different than what you anticipated. And what I mean by that, when I walked in the room my first day at Gang Squad, the officers that were there had been there for you know five or more years. They were seniors, but some of those guys looked more hardcore than some of the gang guys we were dealing with. And you could tell they had become part of the streets. They assimilated into that part of the streets that they had to work. And that's what people don't understand. When you put in that environment, you either, you're either gonna break or you're gonna become part of that environment. You get a little harder. You get a little of that dirt on you from the streets. And you know, I was listening to Ralph talk, and um, and he was one of the best, one of one of the best chiefs that we had. I really mean that. I'm not just saying that because he's on the show. But yeah, I, I think if 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 you remember all of this, what happens with the police department? It becomes this thing where it's us against them. And I don't care if you go in there with that mentality that hey, look here, I'm going in there. I'm from the I'm going to make sure I teach the brothers right. I'm going to do everything. You know, I'm going to do everything differently than the white boys treated us when I was coming up, snatching us, you know, beating our butts and stuff like that. We're going to do everything different. And then you're thrown into that environment. And when you're thrown into that environment, you have to deal with a whole lot of issues because what happens then is some of the people in that environment that's doing all the violence and everything else, and I'm talking about bad areas. You know, you got some areas, just just horrible areas. But some of the people in that area over there, if they see you, weak they will eat you alive so what happens is you start building this 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 kind of thing too where you become part of that society you get just as tough you get just as rough you start fighting like they fight you don't take no stuff guys look too hard at you you're gonna slap the dog stuff out of them now let's go back to where all this starts and it starts from a culture of this culture of cops being roughnecks cops ruling with iron fists we can talk all the stuff we want to talk but let's let's be real. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it out there honestly, because when you go through the academy, they teach you all the right stuff, and they tell you this is what you do. And as soon as you land in the streets, the first thing they'll tell you, and it's your bosses, your supervisor, throw all that stuff out the window, because we're gonna teach you the real stuff that goes on in the streets. And that's what happens. These guys teach you to rule with an iron fist. You go out there and see if you want to hold people accountable. I think gotta hold everybody accountable, not just those officers. Because what happens is some of those officers that came up through that environment and kicking, excuse my French, but I'm just talk real, kicking ass and taking names. That's not French. They, they become supervisors. And guess what? They have the same mentality because that's how they were raised up on the department. So they become these supervisors that's telling you the same thing, kick ass and take names. Now, I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus or anything like that. I'm just going to tell the real truth. When I first got the gang squad, the first thing they did, they had a bunch of deputy chiefs, command officers, all the way from sergeants, all the way up to deputy chiefs, coming to our roll call. And they met all the new guys. And they looked at us and they looked around. This is exactly what we need. We need some young blood here. You guys were handpicked for this job. You guys were selected for this job. You are the baddest guys on this job. You are some of the cream of the crop. Now here, we guys with a year on the job, brand new cops. Very impressionable. And the next thing you say, look here, you had a different unit. Now down at this unit, 
when the citizen get in trouble, they call the police. But when the police get in trouble, they call us, gang squad. At this unit, you tell somebody to do something one time. They don't do it, you send them to the hospital. They hit you, you send them to the hospital. You have to chase them, you give them something when you catch them. That's just real talk. And that's the kind of mentality. They said, go out there and take the streets back. We're gonna take the gloves off, take the streets back. And then they put you in these Delta areas and these they flood these areas. I'm telling you, high crime is bad. They're shooting at cops, they're doing everything. And what you do, you go in there and all of a sudden you start assimilating to that society. You become just like the thugs that's running that area too. Because if you don't, they will eat you alive. I've had guys that will fight you. They don't care. You tell them I'm taking you to jail. They say, let's come on, come take me. You, you're the same guys as the guys in the street. And then sometimes you become the bully. Is this when you're looking at the Memphis tape that, is this what you see? Oh yes, absolutely. What I see with the Memphis tape, I see a bunch of guys with about five years on the job. I see that they're out of shape. Okay, so that's gonna mm -hmm. cause you some problems too. They were horribly they out of shape. Yes, so that, that's why you got cowards. There's five guys gotta jump on somebody. We, we just go one-on-one -on -one with guys. Back in the day, we would go one-on-one -on -one with guys unless you started having some problems, but you would go one-on-one right. -on -one with guys. And what the problem is, these guys, they kind of, I'm sure somebody told them, go out there and take the streets back. Memphis is off the chain. Memphis is going crazy. Right, you know they did. That's You know they did. And and you know when that did. chief came, and I'm not bad, my friend, because I respect all chiefs, because they got, a, they got a big job to do, and I always stay in my lane. I'm, I'm just a street grunt. That's all I've ever wanted to do. But I'm going to tell you something. But when she came out and said, I'm so appalled, I'm, I believe she was, but you know this kind of stuff is happening. She, I'm telling you right now, if she looked down the chain a little bit, one of her command officers or somebody of power told those guys to go out there and do that. Go out there and take the street, streets back. Now, if you tell them to go do that and you don't give them the proper training and guidance, guess what? Guys gonna run crazy. They gonna run right. crazy. And that's why I throw supervisors out there because guess what? They were allowing them to run crazy. I've yeah, been there where they right. say, take the streets back, guys. Go out there and take the yeah. streets back. You know, and I'm telling you, I've been kicked in the face, punched in the face, you know, shot at the whole night. I've been through the through hell and back. And after a while, it becomes us against them. And you look, you don't care about black, you don't care about white. All I know is that guy right there is an asshole. He's a criminal. He tried to kill me. He tried to kill somebody else. And we used to have a saying, this is no life, back in the day. And everything's just got to change. But we used to have to say, sometimes you got to tap that ass for the next cop so he won't get smart with the next cop. So because can I do this? I'm uh, just being real. Yeah, no, real. it's, it's, it's uh, again, look. The no last toll here. Trying, trying to be, trying to be honest, trying to be a solution. And uh, look, hey, Ralph, you should get Ira up there on MSNBC. I mean, this, this, this is oh, no, outstanding. This is the deal. So, if I might, excuse me now, my show, because I got something I want you to look at. This is not all of it. Just you know, little renegade show. But this is the post mortem after the dude. Is he still laying there? He is still sitting there since before. No, he's there. out, man. He's, he's out, out cold. He's out, he's he's out cold. And, and here's the police powwowing afterwards. I've been hurting all day, but when I seen that boy running, bro, hey. that motherfucker ain't sorry no more, bro. Yes, bro. That motherfucker over here. That motherfucker high. He high. He's high. He's high. He's high. He's high as a kite. Yeah, I was good. He said that for us. Man, 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 I jump in and start rocking. What the fuck? Man, like, what look, the man, fuck? Man, I'm telling you, bro. <laughs> man, 
I spray, he spray, hip he'll he jump up, chest I would pause it right there. So what do we hear in there? You know, laughing, motherfucker, uh, you hit me with a taser, I got pepper sprayed by you. What the fuck is going on? That's just sheer adrenaline. And it's total chaos, it's total madness. They involved in the hype. But what you did see, that's a norm. That was a norm mm -hmm. for them. That yeah. was just a norm. They don't and realize some, these cameras are on and a guy uh, nobody's attending to. He's dying out over there. Why, and they're wiping pepper I, spray I, out the face. Well, why do I care about the cameras? My boss is sending me out there to do that job. Mm -hmm. Say that yeah. again. Why do I even think about the cameras? The boss has told me to go do that. And I tell you this, exactly. I bet you if you get some honest cops, they'll say, hey, look here. Why I was out there doing that is because I was told to go out there and do that. Now, let me get the chief but in I here will, on this. Hey, chief. To your point. Chief. To your point. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm the mayor. The point and have the, a question. The mayor had just had a press conference bragging about the Scorpion unit and showing the numbers. I guarantee you those officers were told to go out there, take our streets back, and then they turn their head. And Ira and I have seen it in our careers where officers of BD, gang squad, narcotics, specialized units, and as long as they were keeping the numbers down, they were lauded. As soon as they stepped across the line, same supervisors that encouraged them to do it were the same supervisors that were getting them fired. Now let's go like Thank this. So this young man, uh, Tyree Nichols, let's say he lives and he files a complaint. Where does the investigation begin? Is it an independent review board? Is it a citizens review board? Is it the uh, in Detroit? I'm not talking Memphis. We're not Memphis experts. Or does it begin in the department? The supervisor. Uh, assign some you, you understand what i'm trying to get at here mm -hmm. who's looking at this to begin well when i yeah, left yeah. Uh, and this was under the consent judgments uh there was a a, a use of force uh unit within the eternal affairs time out time out there was a use of force unit within the department itself yes everybody in internal affairs those are like pretty heady cops right they're yes cream yes. of the crop as well but they've come up through the ranks absolutely there's a little bit but, of quid pro quo mm -hmm. perhaps well uh, and i will tell you this um when we came on the job internal affairs they were shunned by everybody in the department if it was known you worked internal affairs you were just not a part of the cool kids um so the culture in detroit and when you compare Detroit to other agencies, you really have to look at the time and the tenor of what was going on. Coleman A. Young, first black mayor, heels of the civil unrest, the riots of 1967, a new charter in 1974 that established civilian oversight of border police commissioners, and then the efforts to make the department look like the community. And Mayor Young made it clear that gangs weren't gonna take over the street but he also made it clear that the police department was not going to dis was not going to harm its citizens unnecessarily. Because remember when there was a prolifer proliferation of gangs, and Ira talked about gang squad, Coleman Young told him, I got the biggest gang in the city. That's but right. there was a different ethos that we were raised under, and that civilian oversight 
that the country is begging for now is not new to Detroit. Well, look, look, you you guys, you're talking internal affairs. I did a l- little lookup of show in, in, in Minneapolis. The guy had 18 complaints. Only two were even acted on. Two shootings, one death, six chokeout incidents. Who began the investigation? It was internally. It was by the police themselves. Uh-oh, I'm getting... I'm getting tweeted probably or messaged by my police friends. Sorry, guys. The one, the ones I know, I know you to be good. You just, I, just, I got to say that a million times. What a, what a, what a job. I depend on you. We all depend. Ain't nobody like. But see, all that's distraction. When when you see all this noise about all oh, cops are this or all cops are that, it's just fucking noise that doesn't solve anything. Right. It drives me up a wall. Uh, well, listen to Ira and listen to. Ralph. Isn't that a poli- the politicization yes. of this whole thing too, Charlie? As you've heard Ralph and Ira say. I mean, you know, where their bosses are telling them to go out and do this and where the chief comes out and says something that mm, probably doesn't make sense, but it looks good and it reads well and it's aligned with what the mayor's narrative wants to be. I mean, that's no different anywhere. And so, you know, that that is an impediment to making a difference in, in, in turning things. I would like to ask Ira and Ralph. I mean, you know, I have the utmost respect for both of you guys, as well as the good cops on our departments. But, you know, when it says take our streets back, does it have to be aggressive? You guys have worked at so many levels, both in the community and on the police force. How else can we take our streets back besides going out and going head to head with 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 the criminals? Is there another way? I I think communication between the citizens and the criminals, I mean, citizens and the cops. I think what the problem is, everybody said, well, you know, these cops, we got to retrain these cops. We got to do this. We got to retrain citizens, too. You know, you got a lot of problems. Now, back in the day, good, they point. Respect, good, good people in the streets respect the cops. You say, get out the car, they get out the car. Excuse me, sir. Uh, you know, you pull them over, driver's license registration. Most people didn't give you any hassles. And cops didn't mess with the average Joe or people going home from work and stuff like that. They put us in areas where they had high crime, high violence, all that kind of crap. And so they put you in that area to really let's let's show these guys they're not going to take over this area, and that's all it is. Policing just got to change. You got to change. We got to communicate more. But you got to train these citizens to say, "Hey, wait a minute now, look here." A cop may not have time to tell you why he's pulling you over. He, you know, it may be a bomb, there may be something going on. But but cops got to be able to say, "Hey, look here, guy, look here, sir. I need you to step out the car right now. You know, look, I know you're nervous, so but come on, step out the car right now." But we got you. We got to understand how to communicate. You know, those kind and, of things. And Ralph, if you remember, Ralph, and, you and I did that quite a bit to make sure we, we put yeah. forth a big effort to make sure people understood what they were supposed sure. to do, what they could do, what was expected of them and how not to fuel that situation. I don't think there's enough communication about that as well. But also you talked about, Ralph, you know, when, when there's systemic issues and, and misperceptions. If a person is already afraid of either a certain area, a certain group of people, whether they're young, whether they're black, whether they're whatever, they're seeing that situation and responding through that lens. So they're already at a disadvantage. Well, I'll say this. I'm I'm, I'm jumping in, Ralph, here. This is what you got to know out there. You are required to get out of the fucking car when the officer asks you. It's not your right to stay in there, right? That's a license. You must exit the car is this correct 
especially if dogs are asking to, it's for a safety. Is this correct? Uh, no. When, the, when, when you're instructed by the officer yeah. to get out of the vehicle, it's, it's, that's the law. Is that right? Yes. No, that's not the to, law. It's a little bit more nuanced yeah. than that. Okay, give us you that because this is important. Have, so the Terry versus uh, Ohio, which is the limited patent frisk uh, for the officer safety to find offensive weapons. Uh, it doesn't take the same articulation as um, other criminal issues. It's reasonable suspicion. But you got you even have to be able to articulate that. But I don't want this point to be lost as well, because I, I got to say this. Something else that was different, and Ira knows this, we lived in the community we policed in. Mm-hmm. Dave made a very noble effort to make a way for officers to move back in the city and that that toothpaste was already out of the tube but there's something to be said about policing the community that you live in and karen you talked about solutions and what could we do um i never had a problem on mac and bwick or or Mm -hmm. in number five or nine because i grew up over there i knew the people i wasn't afraid of my own people Mm -hmm. i knew how to communicate um those things as nuanced as they are they make a hell of a difference in the relationship you have with the community. Having when, said that, I, I must, as I much as I agree with that, data, that when yeah. police, first of all, it's unconstitutional, that's why they don't. That was the Supreme Court, not the city no, charter. No, it wasn't Supreme Court. It, it was, was the state Supreme, Supreme Court. No, it wasn't. It was uh, the state legislature in an overnight move when uh, mm-hmm. the fire fires. Did that not go to the Supreme Court? No, it did not. No, it Interesting. Did not. That was I will look at this, sir. Look at this here. Note to self to educate <laughs> and, myself and, on that note. Seriously. And and the firefighters, they made a hell of a push and in a overnight sign the bill in the middle of the night deal. Uh that happened when Dennis Archer was mayor. I was in charge of Archer yep. Security. I was in the car when he got the call and he was livid. And you know how low-key and calm Dennis Archer is. That was a game changer on the relationship, yep. even with the Detroit Police Department and this community. Because you saw a mass exodus, exodus of officers in areas that were very stable, very mm-hmm. stable tax. Copper Canyon on the east side. Um, what year was Rose that? on the west side. What year Cops was that? Lid. Ralph, what year was that? What year? Ralph, what year was that? Around 2000. Okay, so let's do some math. Mm-hmm. We, the Detroit Police Department got under the consent decree for locking up people on the ninth floor of 1300 Bobian, right? Potential mm-hmm. witnesses until they sang. That was, that was prior that was prior to the residency requirement. Yes. Also, the golden age of Coleman Young was the golden age of murder in this town and murders per capita were 15 people higher per 100,000 than they are now. So in terms of treating people badly and serious violent crime, the ultimate being murder, it it doesn't look like residency mattered at all. No, I beg to disagree. I, I disagree with that vehemently because one thing you cannot quantify is the quality of the relationship between a police department and its community. Because when you saw civil unrest all across the country in 1992, when um, um, Rodney Rodney King King was beaten to a pulp, people were tearing up 
major cities across the country. It didn't happen in Detroit because number one is being police is someone like being a quarterback or, or excuse me, the head coach of an NFL football team. You get way too much credit when you win and you get way too much blame when you lose. Police are a small part of the safety construct. And a part of that is how the people relate to their police department. Most reasonable people don't believe don't blame the police for societal issues that the police don't cause. When it becomes an issue is when you have police that disrespect blatantly the rights of mm -hmm. its citizens, talks down to them. Citizen complaints are high. Um, is that a thing because, here in Detroit? Oh, hell yeah. Before I left the department, the highest citizen complaint person that was garnered was a guy named Tambor Jackson. And counterintuitively, you would have thought that the um, when we start tracking citizen complaints and keeping them in that data in that record management database, as a result of the consent judgment, people would just assume there was going to be a white officer. The top two persons that had citizen complaints were African-American officers. Tambor Jackson eventually got fired and got caught up in some other criminality. <laughs> but I see all that to say that the culture changed uh, immensely because you, you had you can say this to a chief, whether you like their policing style or not, whether you thought it was successful or not. From uh, B Bill Hart, Stanley Knox, um, Ike McKinnon, uh, uh, Ella Bully Cummings, uh, Benny Napoleon, Charles Wilson, me. All of us, we had relationships in this community to, where people knew they can touch us, they could talk to us, and they could talk to our and command officer. That's an anomaly, and that's not the norm. We take it for granted in Detroit. When we lost residency, we lost a huge part of that community connectivity. Ralph, um, <laughs> re regarding um, you know the, the specialized units and working in the community, uh, is it a possibility to take the resources that go to those, you know, that go to the Scorpion or the Red Dogs in Atlanta to take those resources and put these guys in patrols so they're more visible? Or does that just make them a target in these really high crime areas? I mean, what is what is the answer to that? Because you seem to you, you see these things being disbanded. But then what happens? But you know what, Mark, it's not an either or it's a both and uh, undercover operations. They are necessary. Plain clothes, semi-marked units, they are necessary. It's when you go to the extremes on either one that you have community problems and you have issues. Because that wink and a nod, go out there and stop it without appropriate supervision and training. Again, it, it goes well when the numbers go down. And this is the thing, and this is the thing about targeting areas and not knowing the nuance of the area. Now mm -hmm. I will tell you this, there are certain things that intuitively cops know. I can look at a car and tell you whether it's got insurance or not. So if I see a newer vehicle, a newer model vehicle, it's got a, a, a dent on it and you start to see some rust. That tells me they can't afford the insurance premium, so they probably don't have insurance. If I stop that car seven to eight times out of 10, I'm going to be right. This is the problem when you start doing those shortcuts. The one time that you're wrong, you get a, a, a Tyree Nichols. The one time you're wrong, you get a George Floyd. The one time you're wrong, you get an Eric Garner. Those things that, you know, it, 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 it's really lazy policing. And when you start taking shortcuts on people's rights, that's when you have, because it only takes, see, the thing is the criminal, we got to get it right 10 times out of 10. Yep. The criminal 
they don't have to get it right but once. See, twice. there you go. That's we got to get it right that, every that's, time. That's that's that, 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 Ralph. That fair. that is the rub here. Now, that's the rub. I'm gonna bring it up. You two, I know you guys from from deep and difficult moments. Ralph, I remember when you ascended to chief of police, a seven-year-old was killed by a white officer on yes. her couch sleeping, exercising a search warrant. Yes. Ira, you actually were on court TV under trial for taking the life of a man while on duty. So I throw that out there. I, I would ask you this as we wind up. You guys know the serious pain. You know the other side of it. We're talking about the solutions, but the reason to have you, not only because you're brilliant men, but, but you know both sides of this. I'm going to give it to you first, Ira. What did that do to you, and how do you look at it now, these many years later? Well, the first thing it did to me, it matured me. It was a wake-up call. And then you realize, wait a minute, you know, cops, we are subjected to the same constitution as everybody else. We could be charged just like everybody else and everything else. And when I sat at that defense table, I realized, wow, you know, my life is I my life is in my lawyer's hand, but guess what? Nobody from the department who told us to go out there and be aggressive, go do these things and everything else, you don't see them after a while. And I'm being real. Right. You know, like like uh, Ralph was saying, like um like citizens' complaints and stuff like that. There's some cops that's so connected in the nepotism and they got relatives on the job and they got they close with the command officers or they, you know, it's some some sort of connection. They drink with them, whatever like that. They get a citizen complaint, you'll never hear about it. You know, the guys who don't have that protection of knowing somebody or up above or whatever like that, they're the ones that get, get all the hits. And let me tell you what they used to tell us years ago. If you don't get a citizen complaint, you're not working. You're not a working cop. You know, if you got a bunch of planes out there, that means the cop is working. Me and a buddy was just talking, me and Lonnie Wade, and he's an old school, old mentality cop. You know, he was the one that got in trouble hitting that guy in Myers, you know, when he was fighting. He was uh, doing secondary employment, 60-something years old. He can't retire because they took his, you know, we talk about contracts, but they took yeah. all our pension and all that crap. But he stuck out there 60-something years old, almost 70-something years old, in a, a, a Walgreens or Myers or wherever the heck it was, Working secondary, guess what? He didn't pay him enough. He ain't got no insurance. He couldn't really retire yet. There's a lot of reasons. But you yeah. put him in that position now where he gets his young kid dragging him out the store. He's got to fight this kid. He's going to resort back to his training, his old school stuff. He cracks the guy in the face with whatever he had to protect himself. And guess what? He gets charged. He wound up losing his job, everything else. I'm just saying sometimes cops are putting those positions. Yes. They're putting those positions where... They're told to do certain things that created they create this monster. And like Wade's always say, they turn us into thoroughbreds, let us loose, and then when it get crazy, they want to bring us back. It's too late. You can't bring them back. And then it because all changed. That, that mentality in their head. What about you, Ralph? You know, um, you, you refer to Ayanna Stanley Jones. Um, I get choked up to this day. Um, Karen knows very well I was assistant chief and what that um just the, the horror of I, I was in the emergency room standing there when she was pronounced dead. Um, and I was in the room when homicide had to inform that family that the child's life was lost because of police action. And I was absolutely right. Um, the officers are really a pawn in this game. 
because they're put in a position to do things and asked to do things. And then when they do them, um, then they're offered up to be crucified, literally. Um, it changed my life, Charlie, because no knock warrants. And ostensibly, that's what it was. Um, using SWAT teams to extricate somebody as opposed to, um, you know, how I know Ira has done a, a million times is set up surveillance and catch somebody in an area that doesn't put anybody at risk. Um, there's so many things that I think about that could have been done differently. And it, it really changed my approach um, to leadership, uh, my heart towards criminal justice reform, and really studying the tactics of what we do. Because Ayanna Stanley Jones is dead because of piss poor tactical implementation of bringing a very bad guy into custody because her father killed Jerry and Blake three days prior. And for her to have died at the hands of police um, is something I have nightmares about. Doesn't make and any sense. Doesn't make any sense. And, and as I look at that screen and see my name, Chief Ralph Godby, to know that that girl's life was really the impetus for my selection to be chief of police. Uh, that's not the way I wanted it, Charlie. It's just not. Now, if I might, we got a, a caller. If we can take that. Let me, I, we're still trying to figure these out. Let me, <laughs> let me try here. Let me try this one. What'd I do there? Hello? I didn't know how to do it. Fucking shit. <laughs> Call back, whoever you are. Listen, well, if he calls Charlie, back, can, can, can I weigh in on this a little bit? I mean, it cannot be lost, uh, as both Ira and Ralph said, that officers are put in these positions. During the, the grand bargain, none of what should have been included to protect and compensate our officers was included. Let's not, that, let's not let that be lost. So we say that uh, public safety uh, is a priority and that we want our officers to be properly compensated. That hasn't that hasn't happened. And that has to have some impact on how they I, I can't imagine that it doesn't have some impact on how they perform. It absolutely does. Karen. And, to, and to Karen's part, too. Think about this. You got guys that in these Scorpio units, you know, I've worked mm -hmm. on a bunch of different units just like that. And five years, 10 years. And guess what? They start seeing the behavior. You start seeing guys bringing the bloody noses and mm -hmm. everything else. You start seeing these guys are getting more aggressive, more aggressive, more aggressive. And that might be the time to say, hey, look here, we need to send them to the shrink, you know, not to mm -hmm. that guy or shrine or whatever that guy. Yeah, right, right. But we need mm -hmm. to send them to a real therapist and, and like start talking to these guys every couple of years in these specialized units, you know, have somebody talk to these guys because this job changes you. It you know, does. It changes you. You become something else. And even the officer don't realize it. You know, I, I'm telling you, we got into a fight one time, and, and I always bring up Del Virginia. His name was Popeye. I know Ralph Popeye. Too. But yeah, Popeye was one of our senior officers that worked narcotics game squad, and he was teaching some of the younger guys. And he was one of the more reasonable guys with yes. wisdom and would yeah. teach us. And I, I remember one, a fight broke out in 36th District Court. And sometimes you get these guys that be like, I'm telling you, they get real. And you, the only way you can't handle them is handle them physically. And we was in, in 36th District Court. He had a court case. The judge had, you know, told me he was bonded for trial. He had bond and everything. He runs out the courtroom, starts screaming at everybody, cussing cops out, walks up to a sergeant. I'm only mentioning his name. 
But get ready to grab the sergeant and actually punches this sergeant in the middle of uh, 36 District Court hallway and everything else. So back then, immediately, you touch a cop, we all so, get you. Well, let, me, uh, let, me bring, let me bring let me bring in uh, the caller. You there, caller? I'm sorry. The caller there, Bern? Nico, you there? I can hear him. Why yes, can't... I'm here. Hi. Good afternoon. I'm sorry. Good evening. Who is this? Yes, can you hear me? It's Miko Williams. Hey, Miko. Miko Williams. Miko. Yes, hi. How are you, man? Like, uh, Miko is... Well, he was the guy that was fighting for your water rights. Miko, I, in, in my estimation, was the Detroit Will Breathe founder. Miko got thrown into paddy wagon during the protests of the summer of Floyd. You've been listening, Miko, obviously. What, what do you make of the conversation? What would you like to say? Well, first of all, I just want to point out uh, that things have changed here in the city of Detroit. We live in a city uh, with a white mayor. 80% black residency with a 55% black, I'm sorry, 55% white police force. The black police officers are leaving the force for other opportunities or for better pay. And that is putting us at a um, at, at an impasse of terror and fear. We also, I also want to point this out and shout out to Chief Ralph Gabby. He's my pastor at Triumph Church. Um, oh, we do not have a police chief that is reassuring the community that crime will be fought, and while crime is spiraling out of control, this could be said for many major cities, in this city, when it's black police officers beating on someone, that will be applauded by the elder population in the city. Our news stations would justify the beating, and also people would go along saying, well, he should, he deserved it, he should never been out there, however, because we lived in a warped uh, uh sense that uh, we cannot protect our rights when our rights should be protected. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this finally. Black lives do matter. In the city of Detroit, every life in this, in this living in the, in the city uh, deserves protection. We deserve uh, a bang for our buck. We are taxpayers that employ the police to protect us, not to shoot, kill, and maim us. Now, even though Tyree Nicholson, uh, RIP to him, uh, did not happen in the city of Detroit. What if that did happen in the city of Detroit? Well, could a white well, well Nico, what would, uh, Miko, would Miko, what would happen if that happened in Detroit? Oh, what would happen? Yeah. Oh, well, like as I just said, if, if, if it was a white man that was a motorist that was beaten by five black CPD officers, uh, I said it on the thing, Jeff Feiger, Michael Morris, and all the lawyers, this will be exploited. We would have a field day. The city of Detroit would have uh, headlines, and we all would be both sizing and what about and pointing fingers. Yes, at one again, another. I'll say the this. Solution I'll, look here now. No, you don't. No, 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 no. It's in your pulpit. We have plenty of videotape here where you'll see black officers beating white suspects. I mean, are we going to get to a spot where we're? I understand. Like I said, as I started the program, I understand the racial calculus in America. I'm looking for a solution that is equitable for black, for white, for brown, and for blue. The solution, we have been trying to have a summit. Uh, I know I've been calling for a summit here in regards summit. to mental health. How about the contract? Uh, yes, the I tell you what, I got, an, I got an assignment, Miko. Listen, because you are a bad motherfucker. There's no doubt. Find me the latest contract, okay? 
I got your number, you got mine. We, we're going to do something together. And we're going to report back in a week whether we, we could get you too, Karen. Where's the contract? Agreed? Contract. The latest police contract that was uh, voted I by the city council in November of 2022. We agreed? Yep. I'll find it. Let's start with being smart. Then we can shoot our mouths off. Now, I want to thank Ralph Gobby. I want to thank Ira Todd, fantastic public servants. I want to thank Miko for calling in. I always love Karen, everybody on this show that works, everybody listening. And don't be a ding-dong where actually you can watch this. You go to YouTube, you go to Facebook. There's a lot of people. And sadly, I want to say... You'll make sure it's okay. Another good cop has just texted me. He will retire tomorrow. Officer Jim Loomis. One of the good ones I've been telling you about. One of the ones that cares. One of the ones that's honest. He will be retiring tomorrow. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. Ralph, thank you for your service. Ira, yours. Karen, yours. Try to stay together. Thank you, Thank Charlie. You, Thank you, guys. Thank you. Good to see you guys.